Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner. And today I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Duncan Stewart, who is the Director of Research for Telecom Media and Technology at Deloitte Canada. Uh, Duncan, it's great to have you. Hey, Ed. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, we uh, we go back a little ways. D- uh, Duncan and I were actually counterparts or competitors uh, going going back a little bit. Yeah. We're, 20 years now, I guess. Something like that, anyway. Uh, well, both of us were uh, did our did our time as sell side analysts and and have found our our ways to do to doing other more uh, more meaningful work or. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all I guess it's all in a all in a process but anyway it's 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 great to have you on Duncan one of the one of the things that Duncan um, is responsible for is uh, Deloitte's uh, annual technology at media and, and and telecom or TMT predictions um, I guess I kind of switched the T but they're they're all uh, they all, they're all consistent, <laughs> uh, and this is a you know this is a document that essentially outlines vision for for some of the most important, uh, some of the most most important trends over the next year and and uh, and decade. Frankly, um, it's widely read. Duncan travels around the world and is uh, is regarded as really a kind of a leading uh, thinker and. Um, uh, and and a researcher in really in the space. So it's it's great to have you on the on the podcast, Duncan. Thanks, Ed, and I'm glad you didn't use the F word. Um, one of the things we try to avoid is being called futurists. We don't like that term. Futurists, futurists tend to talk about like 20 years in the future, this is going to be big. But there's 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 seldom a precise time frame, and there's seldom precise numbers. One of the things that Deloitte Predictions has done and continues to do, and will always do, is that we tend to be extremely precise. Mm-hmm. For example, we don't say, "Oh, we think sales of tablets are going to decline in 2017." We say, "We think sales of tablets are going to decline, and at end of year, the number of tablets sold will be 165." Point zero million, uh, which allows our clients to to make assumptions and do things with that. Um, and of course, when IDC comes out and says the actual number sold was one hundred and sixty four million, we're pretty pleased because that means we were you know we were accurate to within a single percentage point. Uh, so um, that's what we strive for across the uh, uh, two thousand seventeen predictions. Our accuracy rate, and anybody can score these at home. Uh, our accuracy rate across our predictions last year was ninety percent, uh, nine zero. So that's uh, that's a pretty pretty good track record. That is. That's. I think that's even uh, even more accurate than Ray Kurzweil. <laughs> I think he he claims about an eighty eighty six percent prediction. Well, uh, and and no offense to my buddy Ray, who I've never met. Um, I've gone over his scoring, and I respectfully disagree with some of his self assessed scores. But anyway, well, it's he's and he is much more of a uh, a long term futurist. But exactly. listen, yeah, and so what I think would be helpful for the uh, for the listeners would be to really just to talk about your background and and what in particular had had shaped the way that you look at, look at and examine the the technology landscape well 
I, although I am not a futurist, I am sort of a futurist. So it, it, the way it actually uh, came about is our shared history as sell-side analysts. I was, I was a fund manager for years, so buy-side for a number of years, sell-side for not that many. Uh, oh, gosh, I think only seven in total. Uh, but, but that idea of not just saying, you know, here's what I think about the future of this technology, but actually that discipline of being, here's how many units Apple is going to sell in this quarter. You know, that kind of, of precision from the sell side is not normally actually applied to the business of predicting the, the longer term future of technology. So what we've done at Deloitte is we've created kind of a hybrid model. We've got the attempted precision and, and timeliness of a sell side research report without any investment implications, obviously. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about buying and selling stocks, but but I am taking that that that, that ability to, you know, build a, a multi thousand line model to try to get to some fundamental truth one or two or three years out. That's really the inspiration for what Deloitte Predictions does and and how I look at the world of technology. Um, The only other comment I'd I'd sort of add there is that, uh, you know, we look a lot at the data. uh, You're probably familiar in the world of of medicine. There's a thing out there called evidence-based medicine, which is we we don't use this drug, we don't use this procedure or surgery without looking at actually does it work? And and the idea of evidence-based measurement is a lot of the things that surgeons used to do, like just you know ripping out uh, ripping out appendixes uh, willy nilly, um, that sort of stuff uh, was not actually supported uh, by the data. So with predictions, what we try doing is looking at the data. Do consumers actually use this device? Um, that kind of thing. Well, talk a little bit about the the origins of the predictions. I mean, you, you guys really are you know, putting a stake in the ground. You, you, you do have some uh, skin in the game, as it were, in terms of uh, at least committing yourselves to numbers. But what you know, what what led to uh, the the effort to to really be able to provide this uh, this da- this da- this type of data? And and how do your uh, constituents? I'll say it's because this is a pretty broadly read uh, you know re- broadly read publication you know, how, how do people use the data well so the the origins were 2001 uh, a guy at Deloitte named Paul Lee Paul is my my colleague and partner and co-author of the predictions uh, Paul got the idea of writing this back in 2001 and was supported by uh, a great guy at Deloitte, uh, now passed on, sadly, uh, Egal Brightman. Uh, but uh, they came up with the idea of doing this uh, many, many years ago, 2001. We've published it every year since then. Uh, it has become, over time, I think, uh, according to the data, our most widely read, Deloitte's most widely read tech media and telecom document. Um, how do clients use it? There's two really important parts to that uh, question, Ed. So it's a great question. The, the, the first part is, who are the clients who use it? And you might think, well, tech, media, telecom, obviously, and that is true. But what we're discovering is that more and more people are outside of TMT are looking to tech, media, and telecom as 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 their growth levers, right? If you're a bank these days, it's it's not about it's not about uh, you know how many physical brick and mortar branches do you have on the corner in Chicago or New York. It's you know what is what's your fintech ability? What's your what's what's your back office uh, doing? How's your website? How's your how's your mobile? 
mobile app. Uh, over and over, technology is the differentiator in nearly every industry, whether it's financial services or retail or um, it doesn't matter. Um, around the world, people from every industry are dying to know what comes next in tech, media, and telecom. It is, uh, uh, to quote uh, Phil Asmundson, who's our former former uh, technology uh, telecom leader, Phil once said that tech, media, and telecom isn't just a, um, uh, an industry, it's a service line, you know, it's it's actually a service that we can offer to everybody. So people around the world are looking to the predictions uh, in all industries. How do you use it? Um, we seldom tell people exactly what to do. Instead, we say, here's what's going on. Here's the data. Um, we try to be real mythbusters about it and talk about things that either other people aren't talking about or going out there and saying this thing that everybody says is going to be big. No, it isn't, and here's why. That sort of data then goes into their strategic process. Uh, so this is the sort of stuff that. CEOs and CFOs and CIOs and CMOs, they're gathering around and they take the data. We go around the world and we talk to them and we give them the data and then we have conversations with them about what, the, what their response to that information should be. So it's a, it's a critical part of the strategy process for multiple uh, companies and multiple industries and multiple geographies. No, that's great. So let's dive into uh, some of the some of the work that you've done for 2018, and and what was noticeable uh, this this year was really the the highlight of uh, the, the 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 fact that you highlighted augmented reality, which has been an area I think where uh, you know, we've seen VR be incredibly hyped a couple of years ago, and uh, a few unnamed pundits that. Uh, uh, that I'm friendly with had uh, gotten, I, I would say, a little bit overly uh, excitable about virtual reality, but now augmented as augmented reality is starting to uh, to emerge. I mean, what? First of all, if you could highlight some of the uh, some of the forecasts, and also, um, you know, what has changed in the market that's really shaped the uh, the really the the mainstreaming and the emergence of of augmented reality uh, right. in, in such as such a powerful you know shaping force. If I recall that, you're a bit of a baseball fan, right? I am. Yes. Yeah. So the batter was up at the plate, and 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 he and he's 0 and 2, right? Because it's not just it's not just VR; it's AR. So so three or four years ago, we had the AR thing, augmented reality glasses that people would wear, and they could record video, and they could have information displayed on a lens only a, an inch or two away from their eye. And a lot of people thought that was going to be huge. And Deloitte actually wrote a report saying, "No, it isn't. People aren't going to wear these." Mm -hmm. um, and then two years ago. Uh, everybody was saying virtual reality. Once again, the head-mounted devices, especially the high-end head-mounted devices, people were looking for these uh, units to be selling uh, literally, you know, literally billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of, of, of head-mounted displays. And and we looked at we looked at our own our own research, and we just conclusively said there's no way. There's just no way. Um, there are, some gamers will buy it. Uh, longer term, the enterprise market might be interesting, but VR headsets we predicted two years ago would be. A massively disappointing uh, failure, and of course we were entirely correct. We've sort of changed, so that's the O and two. When we talk about VR and AR, you know, those those are two strikes. The the, the glasses weren't a big success, and the head-mounted displays for VR weren't a big success. I mean, they're they're out there, but they're small, small numbers. 
Where we think it gets interesting this year is on the smartphone itself. We are not asking people to tie a computer to their face. Over and over, consumers have been proven that they do not want that solution. And no matter how much Silicon Valley and venture capitalists believe in this as a, as a growth market, consumers themselves at the end of the day will not wear these devices. So you can, you can give them to them. They'll play with it once or twice for 12 minutes, stick it in a drawer, and never look at it again. So mm-hmm. conclusively, you know, up until 2018, that's been very clear. What we think is more interesting is the use of augmented reality on the smartphone. Everybody's got a smartphone, and unlike head-mounted devices, people love their smartphones and carry them with them all the time. So the ability of creating and viewing augmented reality content on smartphones, especially with the various uh, improvements in smartphone, uh, both software and processors, enabling a very high-quality AR experience. Um, If you look back uh, even a few years, AR was, it was there, you could do it on a phone, but the lighting was bad, the resolution was low, motion was jerky, and and objects tended to float in midair and not cast shadows. In the last uh, year or so, we've seen tremendous progress on that, and augmented reality on the mobile device is a much higher quality experience. So the Deloitte prediction for this year is that over a billion people worldwide will be creating AR content. Now, i got to be honest, Ed. Most of it is the selfies, you know, the, the, the cat ears and the dog ears mm. and the goat ears and gosh knows what else. Good, and that's super fine. useful stuff, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, no. And Ed, you're, you're of my vintage, and I'm going to push yeah. back on you. The first device that the average American uh, ever owned that had an integrated circuit uh, on it uh, played digital ping pong. Uh, frequently, new technologies begin with the trivial or the inconsequential, and then that's the thin edge of the wedge, and that's how their entry point to the broader consumer market. So I do think that AR this year, there's a lot of people using it and playing with it, and as you say, it's not exactly world-changing, but it's the start. We're in, mm-hmm. we're in the first inning. We're in the first inning, and, and right now, um, some... Um, a lot of people are getting used to the technology and figuring out what it can and can't do. So we think AR on the handset uh, is, a, is a real thing and a growing thing. Well, it's interesting because you go back a couple of summers and Pokemon Go seemed to be that, uh, you know, that, that, that trigger, that realization for a lot of folks. And when you look at, at the use cases for, of AR in an in, in industrial uh, context, I mean, we've been um, I've been uh, actually just had a, a conversation with uh, with a company, Augmate, that's um, with the CEO and, and they're very much focused on using you know, uh, AR and, and uh, uh, headsets for for field service. I mean, do you uh, do you expect to see AR use cases being much more broadly you know, adopted uh, on the on the smartphone for um, you know, for business use cases? Yeah, there's some. So, so let's go back. Let's split that question into two. So, first of all, augmented reality on headsets. Everybody goes, oh yeah, this would be great. You can use it in uh, like uh, field repair. You know, send a lineman up a little utility pole with a pair of AR goggles, uh, and he can he can uh, see you know which is the live wire and stuff like that. There's some of that. Uh, there's some of that. But you know, I, I actually get, I gave a speech down to the utility industry in the states down in D.C. a few a uh, few weeks ago, and we had this conversation. And and one of the problems with those those AR goggles, in, you know, in the field force, you know, up on the pole, you know, it it, it rains out there and stuff a lot, like a lot. And they don't, these devices don't tend to be rugged. Sometimes uh-huh. they're down in a in a place where it's a harsh environment, a potential uh, risk of explosion. Uh, you can find space with dangerous gases. You can't have a device there that might potentially. Protect 
produce a spark. So they're not, they're not that rugged, they're not that safe. One of the critical issues is that dropping a drop-down menu in front of a, uh, of a guy working on a 20-kilovolt line uh, and obscuring something that he or, or she needs to see is a potentially mm. uh, very serious hazard. So I've actually spoken to the folks in the utility industry, and they're like, yeah, that'll happen one day. That, that's certainly going to be a thing, and we're interested in it. We're following it, but it's not imminent. Um, instead, those AR headsets um, are certainly being used in medical. Um, uh, the other one that certainly jumps to mind is manufacturing. You know, working inside a, a controlled factory, you're not working on anything dangerous, but you're, um, you're running, you're running a, a bunch of fiber optic cables or wires through a wiring harness. Having an AR goggle uh, drop down showing you which, which wire to feed where, that's a real use case mm-hmm. uh, that does seem to be used. Will people do that on their smartphones in the enterprise world? Uh, there will be some of that. There will be some of that. But uh, even there, a little bit cautious because, you know, uh, frequently uh, you, you don't want to hold your phone up and, and hold it over something because then you're down to one working hand. So uh, we're going to see a mixture. The one I do like, Ed, and I actually posted this on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter uh, two weeks ago, maybe one week ago, Google did a really uh, superb example of augmented reality. And it wasn't on a smartphone and it wasn't on a headset. It was on a microscope. What they did is they took a conventional microscope in a, in a, in a pathology lab looking at, at slides of potentially cancerous tissue, and they combined machine learning and augmented reality so that the pathologist, when he or she peers down the, 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 the lens through the microscope, they are looking at the tissue, but there's a little green circle highlighting a, a bunch of tissue that, that to the machine learning algorithm doesn't look quite right. Hmm. This to me was just a, a brilliant example because it, it, it makes the process faster. There would be a real ROI in detecting cancer or, 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 or saying that's not cancerous faster, uh, and it fits within the existing workflow. I mean, anybody who knows anything about the enterprise market, if, 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 if you've got a, a rip-and-replace strategy where people have to throw out everything they've spent 100 years using before, that's a tougher sell than you keep using exactly what you have, exactly the way you have, we're just going to make it work slightly better. So I thought that Google example of augmented reality through the microscope and the path lab, I thought that was uh, an absolute home run. That's that's a great example. I um, I think what is becoming apparent is that smartphones do do continue to evolve, and it was as we've been looking at at connected industry and and the evolution of Internet of uh, you know IoT. It isn't just the you know the connected fixed devices or, or static devices that that are are evolving. I mean the uh, the smartphone itself is an extension of of the of the human. If we think about the ability to to, to track people or provide the, essentially provide information actuation to uh, to human actors in, in, in the field is uh, is incredibly powerful and I wanted to, to, to move on a bit to uh, this concept of invisible innovation that, that you you have talked about and uh, could you explain a little bit what you what you mean by invisible innovation and, and how does that you know how is that going to play out uh, in you know in the industry we're we're talking about smartphones uh, and over yeah. the, and over the next several years a lot of this of these innovations are are, are creating just in, incredibly powerful capabilities in the palm of our hands. 
Well, this is sort of a, an automotive analogy. Um, the outside of cars these days, it, it just doesn't change much. You know, I mean, I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when I was in the 70s, there were still cars from the 60s driving around. And, and man, they look cool. I mean, some of them had wings and some of them had this. And they all, you know, from the outside, they look totally different. These days, every single car looks more or less the same because they're all aerodynamic and they all do this and they all do that. And we've sort of standardized. There's sort of a, a form that, 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 but inside... I mean, you could have a, a gas engine or an electric battery or, you know, uh, bigger motor, smaller motor, better brakes, uh, various levels of autonomy. All of the innovation in cars from now until, oh gosh, the next 10 or 20 years, all of it's going to be under the hood, right? You know, it, it's going to maybe cost more. It might save your life. But you wouldn't be able to tell by just looking at the outside of the car. In the same way, the smartphone externalities are kind of frozen. We, we can't make them much bigger than six inches and still have them fit in our pockets or, or in the human hand. Similarly, the display, the high-end OLED displays on the top-end phones today, they're great. I love them. Super clear, super sharp, super, you know, good brightness and, 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 and all, that, all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's nothing out there right now that we're working on that's better than that. So when I look at the ability to look at a phone and say, hey, you know, this phone's two years old and I can tell just by looking at it, that's not going to happen anymore. Going forward, phones will get better, but it will be on the sensors, on the cameras, on the processors inside, uh, machine learning chips dedicated to doing uh, machine learning on the edge device. Uh, these are the trends we see. Now, uh, that's the, it's not a bad news, but it does mean that the, the the, the idea that, that people will, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't wear last year's uh, uh, clothes because they, they look out of fashion kind of idea. Um, with the smartphone, we see, we see the external aspect of the phone remaining unchanged for at least the next five years, possibly the next decade. Wow. Okay. So we're so that what that will really create is essentially this. Uh, we'll have these inc you know, incredible power, but really it it, it ends up being, uh, I guess, subsumed to the to the to the design. So no, you're not anticipating any radical radical shift in in design. The form factors. Uh, not only radical, Ed. I'm not I'm not anticipating minor shifts in design. I mean, mm. this whole thing about it's got a notch, it doesn't have a notch. I mean, for God's sakes, I'm rolling around here saying <laughs> like this is not. You know, it's, a, it's it's certainly it's different, but it's not a major major design decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it and and of course that is incredibly powerful. And as you've as you've discussed, what's evolving under the hood? Uh, what uh, I thought was really interesting in in the report was some of the work that you've done about how AI, the evolution of AI and and cognitive technologies, have really you know shaped the development of uh, applications and features. Um, how you know, can you talk a, a bit about the work that you've done uh, around AI and, and with respect to to phones and and uh, the the user experience. How how is this technology going to change the way people interact with devices? So there's there's this is actually it's a, it's a really there's two or three topics all jumbled together in one there and that's that's yeah. not your fault Ed that's well, why that's, that's the way that, I well, that, the, report of course it's uh, of, of course that's the you know the classic multi part question as well yeah but well, I, I got to kind of take a swing at all of them at the beginning so so in our report this year we had an entire section on smartphones and we have an entire section on machine learning chips and then we have an entire section on machine learning in general and I'm gonna kind of because they're all connected. The big thing that's going on, and I, I'm going to step back, I'm going to step back uh, two years ago to 2016. In 2016, if you wanted to do machine learning, you did it in the cloud. 
if machine learning, uh, either training or inference, occurred in the cloud because machine learning was run uh, inside data centers on giant uh, racks of cards, and the chips on those cards cost 5000 bucks and burned 300 watts apiece, and, and that's where you did machine learning. The only place you could, you could do machine learning in 2016 was at the core of the network in the data center and connected over the cloud, and that was an architectural... Uh, reality. There were no other options. Now, there's a few things going on. In that data center, at the core of the network, there are new chips being used, not just the CPUs and the GPUs, the, the graphics processing units that we used in 2016. They're now being augmented with uh, ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, uh, and that's not just the Google TPU. Lots and lots and lots of other companies like Facebook and so forth are out there hiring uh, chip designers to go build their own version of proprietary uh, application-specific integrated circuits to accelerate machine learning learning in their data centers. FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays, are being used to accelerate machine learning in the data center. And that's half the story. But the, uh, by the way, all of those chips in, used in their various combinations, still with GPUs, the GPU doesn't go away, all of those chips effectively work to drop the price per machine learning uh, by orders of magnitude. I have seen I have seen estimates that the cost of machine learning on a, a per decision basis uh, is down a thousand times. I've seen estimates that it's down a million times in the last two years. We are talking uh, somewhere between a three and six order of magnitude decrease in the cost of machine learning uh, in the core in the at the, at the data center level uh, in a two year period, which is 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 Moore's raised to the Moors. You know, that's it's, it's, that's it's just, pretty unbelievable. I I, I have not yeah. heard. I have not. This is the first time I've. I've heard that that and when I look at exponential technologies, this is uh, hyper exponential as almost. That's the phrase I'd use. You know, yeah. it's, it's 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 a big one. So the the idea uh, on that side is is profound and transformative. But it's it, it can be simply boiled down to the fact that doing machine learning in 2016 was somewhat tricky and expensive. It is now both less tricky and less expensive. And when you make things cheaper and easier, they are more widely used than they were before. And, and that's not a radical statement, but you and I have been around in technology long enough to know that that is essentially true um, more or less 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So that's part one of the equation. Part two is a, a much more, uh, in my view, much more interesting one. Believe it or not, more interesting than exponential exponential. If I wanted to do machine learning in 2016 on a turbine in a factory, I had to I had to connect the turbine over a, a network, and I had to worry about latency, and I had to feed my sensor data from the turbine into the cloud, run my predictive failure algorithm, feed it back, and shut down the turbine before it rips itself to pieces, okay? And in 2016, that is the only road, only road to get there. And in 2018, what we're looking at is there are, there are now chips, there are now uh, APIs and SDKs. Uh, so we have the Apple devices, the, the Bionic family, the A11, uh, has machine learning on your smartphone if you have the 8 or the 10. The S9 from Samsung has machine learning on the device. The Huawei has machine learning on the device. The Google Pixel 2 has machine learning on the device. I can keep going. So it's on our phones. That, that's one place. It's on 
on our computers. Two weeks ago, Microsoft uh, came out with an API so that you can now use Windows to do machine learning on your on your PC. Uh, and there are chips being built and being designed uh, that are at the extreme edge. These are devices that would be in volume 15, 20, 25 cents, uh, burning uh, microwatts of power, very, very small. Uh, the point that's going on here, Ed, and this is, this, is, this is what I think is actually the most transformative prediction that we made, is the idea of edge machine learning. We are, are not just doing it in the core at the data center. We will be able to do machine learning inference for uh, less than a dollar on the edge device, which means I don't need to worry about the cloud, I don't need to worry about the network, and I don't need to worry about latency. This is a game changer. This is, this is something that two years ago we would not have thought possible, and now uh, this, is, this is happening in real time. That's a really, uh, I mean, that's a that's a substantive development in, or <laughs> more than substantive. I mean, it really is. Uh, I hate to use the term game changing, but but it really is. I mean, we've been looking at uh, the this sort of broader transition in computing paradigms from centralized to decentralized to centralized to decentralized once again um, as we go as we went from kind of mainframe to PC client server to uh, cloud mobile to now this concept of the intelligent edge and what you've just articulated is this uh, it's a quantum leap uh, by in processing capability and declines in Ed, cost. Ed, Ed. I got to stop you. Don't say quantum leap because one of my topics for 2019 is quantum machine oh. learning. So don't you steal my thunder now? All right, okay? all right. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that uh, that certainly has become become most topical. But it, it this really is it's amazing that you have this or, or orders of magnitude uh, accelerating by uh, almost any inconceivable by any really by by any prior standard. That uh, that's amazing. <laughs> Anyway. And and to your point, I mean, how does all this translate into a prediction for our clients? Bill Deloitte's got a real simple mm-hmm. prediction on this. Not consumer, not playing chess robots, not the Google Home speakers or the Alexas, mm-hmm. at the level of enterprise. The Deloitte prediction is that enterprise use of machine learning will double in 18 compared to the year before and will double again by 2020. Mm-hmm. In other words, true exponential 100% growth uh, over uh, you know 12 to 24 months on an industry that is already tens of billions of dollars in size. So that's that's the that's the takeaway. And so when we tell companies this, they're kind of going you know well. So I need to start thinking about this. We start planning like 2022, 2023, and I'm like no. There is a company. I was in Israel. I was in Israel a few few weeks ago now. There was a company in Israel in their data center, uh, financial services. They had been using GPUs to do machine learning, and they're looking at FPGAs. And I said, looking. What do you mean by looking at FPGAs? And they said, the FPGAs arrived this week, mm. and we put them in. We, we loaded them up yesterday. So <laughs> this is not some sort of, oh, you know, you got to put this on your roadmap. This is actually happening around the world now. And when I say now, I don't mean now-ish. I mean now-now. That's amazing. Well, that I, I think the yeah the implications down the road for all for every industry and and, and certain employment the refactoring of, of processes and uh, and tasks is it, it will it's it is it is fundamentally 
uh, changing everything. <laughs> There's no and it's, no it's every it's every industry. It's every mm-hmm. part of every company. It's not just mm-hmm. the IT department. It's marketing. It's sales. It's logistics. Mm-hmm. It's finance. Uh, every part of every company is looking at machine learning. Wow. Well, I'd like to I'd like to touch a little bit on. Um, you know some of some of the media topics that you focus on. Uh, our, you know our our focus is much more on you know industrial you know connected industry from an industrial perspective. But I do think that you know the uh, from a from a broader uh, point of view, it, it's it's instructive to see what is happening to industries in in media, for instance, uh, music and publishing and. Uh, be very interested to get a sense of um, you know, what you see uh, transpiring over the next several years as, as you, you've been able – essentially, it's an arms race of, between getting messaging out and then blocking it, right? And uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're talking about ad blocking technologies, and you think, well, why is that relevant to a, uh, an industrial firm? Well, if, again, if you're trying to get your message out and, and if the um, – you know, certainly the avenues from which your constituents or, or customers consume information becomes, you know, becomes limited uh, because of, you know, because or or it becomes diffused in another in another way. Yeah, I mean, what how how does how is this technology this arms race between you know the end users and those who are seeking to harness data to persuade people to uh, you know to hear their message? How's 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 this changing things? Three big macro trends there. So, so one of them is is ad blocking. Um, the idea uh, we invented a word for this. I, I think it's kind of cute. We we came up with a name for people who don't just block one kind of ads, but instead are blocking multiple kinds. They're blocking on their computer. They're blocking on their smartphone. They're using a PVR DVR to TV skip on ads, and they're listening to Spotify in the car rather than radio uh, because they don't like radio commercials. Like you know, that's that's somebody who's blocking almost every kind of of ad out there. Um, and the word we came up for this was we called these these people ad allergic. Mm. There we go. So, okay. Normally, people laugh at that point, Ed. That's all right. I don't. I don't. I'm not blaming you. But <laughs> the idea that people are allergic to advertising, uh, and what we found, because we actually went out and we asked people in in Canada and the U.S., uh, and we we found that the percentage of people who are blocking more than half of all the ads they see is quite small. So less than ten percent. So that's not so bad, right? That's like eh, you know, a lot of people in the media space thought it was more like fifty or sixty percent. So only ten percent. I can live with that. The problem is who. Um, that 10%, that 10% of the audience uh, uh, who's blocking more than half of the ads out there, they tend to be young, they tend to be higher income, they tend to be highly educated, and they tend to be employed. Meaning that from a demographic perspective, although relatively few people are blocking most of your ads, the ones who are blocking most of your ads are usually uh, among the most desirable from a demographic perspective. So if I am thinking about it, this from the advert, you know, the person who's buying the advertising, how do I, how do I reach young, highly educated, high-income people? And there's, there's a bunch of solutions out there. Um, we talk about this in the report. But, but also, there's other things. You can, you can move away from an ad model. You can, you can have a subscription model, and we have a prediction around that more and more people getting more and more prescriptions, uh, subscriptions, sorry. Um, it's not a, it's not a cord cutting world. It's a cord stacking world where people mm. are, you know, and I, the example I always use is, you know, I'd walk into a room and I say, you know, who here, who here canceled cable? And somebody puts up their hand. Great. And I said, now who here, um, in the last uh, couple of years has uh, gotten a Netflix subscription? Hands go up. Spotify subscription? Hands go up. Uh, gaming uh, subscription? Hands go up. Uh, newspaper or magazine subscription like the Times or The Economist or whatever it is. And a bunch more hands go up. 
We have managed, some of us have managed to cut one of our subscriptions, like cable, but we've added four others. Mm-hmm. So, so our point is, is that the subscription model isn't dead, it's, it's shifting and it's changing, and people are, are willing to have multiple subscriptions. Um, the final, final thing that we point out is live, and, and as a musician, Ed, I know you're going to enjoy this one. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, the global market for live is $545 billion a year. Uh, around the world, around the world, people prioritize live entertainment. And whether you're going to make them pay for that through a subscription or stick some advertising on top of it, because it's a, it's a lot harder to, uh, to ad block when you're looking at live, we think that's sort of a, a big three of media trends. Not that many people are ad-blocking, but some are. And if you want to reach that audience, you want to think maybe about a subscription model instead, or you want to think about focusing on, on live content, because live is the stuff that isn't going uh, over the top. It's the stuff that's uh, uh, being consumed frequently with advertising. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, uh, it's encouraging, I guess, for, certainly for, for content creators. Um, so yeah. I, I do have a question, it, I, whether you've given any thought to uh, – whether we might actually be seeing a, ba- a data backlash in this uh, with with the the revelations around you know Cambridge Analytica, Facebook testimony, you've got uh, well of course in Europe GDPR has been uh, is is about to come into place next um, uh, or next month or in May, um, but this these business models that have been based on harvesting people's data. The I guess the the old joke was that if if you're not paying, uh, then you are the product. Uh, how how do you how do you see this dynamic really shaping the the, the way that uh, not just media companies but uh, you know all companies that are going online uh, with with their messages you know over the next couple of years. Right. Um, did you did you ask that without actually mentioning the words either Facebook or Cambridge Analytica? I'm, I'm just, I, or did I miss them there? Uh, no, I did. I did pop Cambridge and uh, and Facebook. There, okay, I missed it. I missed it. Okay, were, yeah. yeah. So um, this is not a Deloitte prediction. We 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 have Deloitte predictions, and we spend months researching and writing them, and we have not done one on this. So this is more Duncan as a guy who travels around the world and talks to people and kind of watches things. So. Um, certainly, there's a lot of people out there saying that that they are quitting social networks, uh, quitting uh, other online things uh, in an effort to protect their personally identifiable information. And and a lot of people say that. And when I look at the actual numbers, uh, it's 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 not unlike the percentage of smokers who promised to quit on January 1st. Right? They, a lot of people have have intentions around this, but the follow through is. Uh, is is weak. Uh, a lot of people never actually log off the social network, and of those who do, a lot of them end up coming back within a month or two. So, from a consumer perspective, I actually believe that this is not a big change. I mean, there's a lot of talk and a lot of noise, sound and fury, but signifying nothing. Um, on the other hand, the regulators, I think, is is where it it actually gets very different. We have GDPR in the EU. Um, I believe the ability of of regulators either in in the EU or globally, to enforce laws around privacy and sharing of data, uh, I think that's going to be the thing that could be a game changer. I mean, does Deloitte have an official prediction on this? No. Does Duncan have an official? No. But it's it's if I if I at a very high level, if I'm not worried about the consumer reaction. Uh, 
I, I instead would focus on what regulators do. I think that's that's the thing that's going to move the needle one way or the other. Yeah, I, I, it makes me think of uh, the old saying uh, people used to say about uh, cigarettes: "Quitting is easy." I've done it thousands of times. <laughs> well, the yeah. other thing is, like, I mean, Ed, you and I have been been covering the tech space for 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 decades now, and and when you look at you know people are thinking this about Windows, uh, that wasn't a big deal, you know. Um, on the other hand, you know, here's here's the antitrust stuff. Here's the you know here's what's going on with Microsoft. Here's what went on with Intel. Here's what going way back. Take a look at the breakup of AT and T. When the regulators get involved, things actually can change a lot. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm, by the way, I'm not advocating that regulators should or should not, and I'm not suggesting what their actions should be. Just as an observer of technology over three decades now, when the regulators get involved, sometimes big changes do occur. Well, they do. And and I was having dinner last night with a friend of mine who is a uh, who's a who's a First Amendment lawyer. He's a he's a free speech expert, and he a lot of his clients are very concerned about the. Uh, to, to, uh, that the data privacy uh, issues in um, you know, that are emerging now are are spurring, in particular, European regulators to uh, uh, to to be much much more aggressive. So I think, and, and it's in his view that we can expect a lot more active, uh, maybe uh, potentially intrusive uh, role. Well, it's been great talking with you, Duncan. Appreciate all of your insights uh, on you know on so many different topics. It's it's a lot to pack into a short conversation, but I I'm certainly uh, will will post the links to your work in the um, in the show notes. Um, but one question I I wanted to ask is we always ask is if you could recommend a good book or resource uh, for uh, that it would be something that you would recommend to to your friends or or colleagues. It doesn't have to be a tech related, but it could be anything. Well, I'm, I, I, that's a wide open question, and it actually that that's that's right over the plate for me. Um, I actually think that one of the things that helps me write predictions better than anything else is is reading science fiction. Um, I love science fiction. I, I read a lot of other stuff too, but I I read a lot of SF every year. Uh, and although I could recommend all kinds of stuff, I'm sure I just want to share one. Uh, 2018, uh, 17. It's been you know, and, and I'm not American. I'm Canadian, but there's a lot of partisanship and a lot of negativity out there in the world, and uh, I don't always love all that. Um, so there's a couple books written by a woman named Becky Chambers. Uh, I'm also a big supporter of women in tech, and I think that includes female writers in science fiction. So Becky Chambers, uh, out there, she's written a couple books called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet and another one called A Closed and Common Orbit. They're both uh, excellent science fiction, uh, uh, nominated for multiple awards. Uh, it was a finalist for the Hugo. Uh, the, the thing is with Becky's book is it, it describes a universe where... Um, I mean, there's still conflict and so forth, but where people get along, and it's a, it's a happy, happy science fiction universe, and there's there's still things that need to be solved, but it's it's one of those books that you read and, and you laugh, and at the end of it, you feel kind of kind of good and positive, and uh, I think in 2018 we need books like that, so uh, definitely recommending uh, Becky Chambers' uh, two books, uh, one's from 2014, one from 2016, and she's got a third one coming out soon. Well, that's terrific, Duncan. Uh, great recommendations. It's always it's always nice to uh, to highlight these you know these, these types of books because people are always looking for uh, particularly something that will uh, leave a smile on their face and, and get us away from some of the dystopian uh, visions that that seem to predominate. So, 
Um, as always, uh, Duncan, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we, we have been speaking with Duncan Stewart, who uh, heads up research for uh, uh, Deloitte's TMT effort out of, uh, out of Canada. Uh, this is Ed McGuire, a, the Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, uh, and this has been another episode of our Edge Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.